This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. How can you become more creative at work? How can you become more successful? Well, in this episode, we talk to Sarah Hofstetter, the CEO of 360i, one of the hottest digital ad agencies in the country. And Sarah's got a great story of how she became one of the top stars in advertising. We talk about taking chances, thinking outside the box, and putting yourself in your client's shoes. You will see how much you can achieve when you stop looking outside and start focusing on what you can uniquely do for other people. Delving into current events to uncover relevant wisdom. wisdom. This is the Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari on the Blaze Radio This is the agency that was named top three on Advertising Age's agency A-list three years in a row. They're literally killing it. Adweek's Digital Agency of the Year in 2013. Media Post OMMA Agency of the Year two years going. Named Best Place to Work. Their clients include Kraft, Coca-Cola, Oreo, HBO. And Sarah, the CEO, is... Um, leading the charge with her amazing team. She's been recognized by advertising ages 40 under 40, Adweek 50, Cable FX's digital hot list. She's won award after award. She's quoted in the Wall Street Journal, advertising age in the New York Times. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time and welcome to the show. Thanks, Charlie. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on and, and, I, and you have such a great career and I want to delve into it. But so many times when I speak to somebody and they are somewhere, right? They're at this post where you're hearing about them and they're, they're leading change. You, it's hard for people to realize you came from somewhere. It's, it's easy for us to think that you just sort of like, you know, woke up one morning and someone sort of tapped you and you became CEO. And it's never like that, at least I found from other people, that you're, people are groomed to being a CEO. Usually along the way, there are twists and turns and thoughts and uh, moves. And I noticed that you started your career not in PR. You actually were in, when you were in Queens College, right? And you majored in journalism. So did you think you were ending you were going to PR or you thought when you were in college that you're going to go out and be uh, a writer? I definitely thought I was going to be a writer. I, I didn't know that going into college, but once I got into college, I took a, an introductory journalism class and I absolutely loved it. And I said, okay, I want to be a journalist. That's definitely what I want to do. I have a curiosity. I like to tell stories. This could be a great way to be able to do that. And I deeply fell in love with the idea of journalism and being able to expose fantastic stories to the world. It could be investigative. It could be features. It didn't matter. Um, and that was really where I wanted to take my career. And I had some really great internships along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I met my husband in my journalism class. Really? So it, yeah, there was a lot of really Perfect. good karma <laughs> right, right, right. going on right with direction. that. Um, and both of us were, were you know, very altruistic in our goals. He stayed altruistic. And, uh, Is he a journalist now? Now, actually, he's even more altruistic. He's an English teacher. Oh, wow. So we, all, we, we took, we took uh, different divergent roads as... As our careers progressed, mm-hmm. but he stayed on the editorial journalism track mm-hmm. for much longer than I did because my first real paying job um, ended up being in PR. Why? Um, I wish I could say it was particularly strategic, but it was purely financial. Turns out journalism doesn't pay very well. Right, right. So, and my husband and I were engaged and somebody had to pay, to pay the, the bills. bills right. So he stayed on the uh, editorial journalism track and I ended up getting a job in PR even though I didn't know anything about PR. So how did you end up in PR? What did you, you, you said, listen, it's close enough, I could write, I can tell stories and, or well, it was one of these I needed a job things? Uh, maybe a hybrid. Uh-huh. So I started out figuring out how I could kind of have my little competitive edge on the journalism side. And Mm -hmm. it was right at the time that HTML was coming out as a language. So it was like Hmm. mid nineties and they had this one HTML class class in college that I took. And I said, you know what, maybe I could have the edge with uh, web design. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to get a job at at an internet company called IDT. Sure. And I gave him my resume to somebody I knew. And I said, can I get, you know, maybe, uh, maybe an opportunity to do, 
web design there. And they called me back and we said, have we the job for you? <laughs> and they said, we'd love you to run public relations. We just went public and we could really use some help. I'm like, That's public relations? Right, right. I, I don't know anything about public relations. They said, well, if you know how to be a journalist when you receive the pitches, perhaps you can deliver the pitches. So they were newly public. It was uh, an entrepreneurial environment. There was uh, such an element, like anybody could be successful there. So it was, uh, it was really interesting. So I said, you know what? I'm 22. What do I have to lose? So I, I, that's how I got started. But it literally just thrown into the deep end of the pool where I had never done it before. And the stakes were pretty high because it was a public company. Yeah. So, you know, you really... You got to be ca accountable to investors, not just to to the general sure. public. So let me let me ask you this because you, you, what you just said a minute ago is I think I, I've seen this in other individuals who have accomplished things in life, which is the concept of I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to try anyways. Most people, I think, when they're in a situation of I don't know what I'm doing, their response is I can't. So thanks, I'm out. It's not for me. Did you always have this, I'll try it mentality? Did you pick it up along the way? Where did you get the mentality to say, I'm walking into a public company. I don't know the job I'm doing. I have faith in myself that I can figure it out, and I'm going to take the risk. Um, and if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, I'll be okay. I wish I could tell you I had the confidence. <laughs> um, I definitely did not, but they had such tremendous confidence <laughs> in me, and uh, and and that confidence was infectious because it was it was a very much a fail fast mentality. Like if this doesn't work out, we'll figure out something else. It was more of a team team like mentality. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to tell you I actually had the confidence to kind of jump into the deep end of the pool. But I also looked around and I looked at everybody else in the organization, and if I had to find anybody with relevant experience. I, I certainly couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I figured, how hard could this be? It was an entry-level job. So I got a book. I mean, this was before the real Great. internet. So there was like no YouTube video on how to learn so you PR in you know, 30 seconds or less. So I that's so I, I bought a book. I, I read up on it. I, and I was very transparent. It's right. not like I said, oh, I'm interviewing for a job and I have absolutely no qualifications. I walked in. I said, I, I thought I was talking about one job. You offered me another job. And uh just letting you know, I've never right. done this before. Right. I'll try, but you know, we're, this is an experiment for both of us. So it, it turns out to be wonderful because the best thing about doing something you've never done before is that you're not held back by preconceived notions. Right, that's great. And that I definitely still use today. Mm -hmm. There's what do you so mean? many times, like as at an ad agency, thank God we have a lot of people, and a lot of them come with prior agency experience. Mm -hmm. This is my first agency job. Admittedly, I've been there 10 years, so I've got plenty of experience at the company I'm at. But I've got folks that work with me that have been working at various agencies over the past, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll say to me, well, you know, my experience is at other agencies, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, you know, you left that job, you're here now. Right. So, you know, let's <laughs> right. try it here. So I, I like that we can uh, approach things for what's good for today, not necessarily what may have been good in the days of Don Draper or something. Right, 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 right. And I, I'm sure that even in your business, and I saw that you had said this once, the idea of that 10% rule that I, I think that I had read in your name about how companies, in order to become relevant, need to spend a portion of their times experimenting. And experimenting doesn't mean do what you do, just make it look a little better. It means actually try new things. And you find that, do you find that companies are much more resistant to that because it's new and it's different and people just are familiar with what they're doing? It depends on the environment. I think for a lot of our clients, and I certainly see it in, in a very competitive environment, which is the ad agency business, I think our clients have to acknowledge the fact that the only constant is change. Yeah, well, that's so a hard thing. It's, it's extremely hard, but when you're in such an environment where the competition really is coming from all different places, if you're a TV network, you're threatened by online. If you're a packaged goods organization, you're afraid of two artisanal guys in Brooklyn making a competitive product more mm -hmm. organic, more local. Everybody's got uh, at the barrier to entry right now for so many businesses right now is so low that you have to figure out how to outsmart your competition. And that's where that innovation really has to play a role, whether it's innovation in marketing, innovation in product design, innovation in 
just communication strategies. It, it, it's got to be in the DNA. Otherwise, you become irrelevant very quickly. Right. So how do you do it? So t- take me down. I know it's impossible in a way to sort of find the moment where you go, I got it. And you've, got, you've been through so many campaigns in your life and your career where you've come up with things, your team has come up with things that have blown away your competition, which is why you are who you are. And we'll go through a little bit in terms of some of the things that you've done. But how, if you can, is it possible even to have give somebody some sort of um, science to the art of innovation, to the ability for them to step out of themselves, to step out of their preconceived notions and say, okay, I- I'm not going to use anything or, or I'm not going to rely on what I've done before. How do you, do you just, is it just natural? Is it something that you guys just sort of like draw on walls? Like what do you use to get people to be innovative? Uh, one of the things that I have found is a very simple question to ask which is to put the person you're speaking with in the driver's seat and said, if you were starting a company today, how would you do it? So like if you're Kraft or Oreo, whomever, and you said, if I were starting my marketing communications today, not based on last year's plan, not based on what's been working, you know, Oreo's 103-year-old cookie. If you were starting it today, how would you behave? Mm-hmm. And if you look at, um, it's an interesting company. Are you familiar with Dollar Shave Club? Yes. So is it, the subscription-based razors, yeah. right? Now, this is a you know basically a, a entrepreneurial organization that is taking on Gillette by storm, and the way that they're doing it is they're saying, if I was starting an organization today, would I sit there and try to make big, expensive deals with Walmart and Target and Walgreens and Dwayne Reed? No, I'll bypass the middleman and I'll sell it all online. Mm-hmm. And these guys are taking market share like nobody's business because they're thinking. What if I started it today? So the answer and and is that a lot of a lot of the creativity that people can get to is right in front of them. It's just that they're not framed for it. If they are a lot of I've heard this from other entrepreneurs where they wake up in the morning and what makes them different from other people is not that they're smarter or they're more creative, is that they're open to seeing things that other people take as as sort of for granted, you know, I think some of the, the word was like um, functional fixedness, where if it works, then it, that's what's supposed to be. It's always supposed to look like this. Glasses are supposed to have frames and glasses and lenses. And then all of a sudden someone comes and goes, why do I need frames for? And they're like, what? It works. It's not broken. If it's not, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And entrepreneurs or innovators are people that will allow themselves to reframe and reframe, like you're saying, and saying, what if? What if? What if I had no money? What if we were shut down? What if um, my all my clients went away? What if, you know? What I'm saying that is that really the the process for for entrepreneurialism, for innovation, for just seeing the world differently, and not. And I'm saying this because a lot of people think that they're not creative or they're not innovative, and that may not be true. It's just that they're maybe asking the wrong questions. Asking the right questions is definitely a key to unlocking whatever it is you're trying to looking you'd be looking for, especially within entrepreneurship. It also has to be a willingness to fail to a certain degree, mm-hmm. uh, because you if you're if you're in if you're innovating by default, you're probably doing something that has not been done before. Mm-hmm. And in in certain instances, the bigger you are, the harder they fall, which is why bigger companies struggle with innovation because you don't you you can dabble in it. But you have to create an environment where it's safe to dabble. Right. So uh-huh. and then that's failure what they say. Becomes, right. Yeah, that's what they say. Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. It's because when your back's against the wall, then you might come up with a crazy idea. But when things are sitting pretty, you might get a little bit more comfortable. I right. mean, look at Kodak, look at BlackBerry. Right. So it, it's the if you're not constantly thinking about okay, where's the world going and how do I adapt to it, you could end up in bankruptcy or. Yeah. With your back against the wall. I was reading this study about how Fortune 500 companies 30 years ago were on the Fortune 500 list for like a decade, and then it became five years, and then and now it's like every two years the biggest companies get replaced. And I think it's because of this what you're saying, which is as you the world operates at such a, such a high pace that change now is not something that it's not it's not an option. It's part of your the DNA of a business. And the bigger you get, if you're not built a certain way, you're just sort of asking yourself, so to speak, to be replaced. Or if you look at some of the bigger trends, having assets is actually less of an asset these days. Really? So if you look at um, the difference between the large hotel companies and Airbnb, mm-hmm. who's more poised for success right now? Right. It's right. actually Airbnb. Why? First of all, they have nothing to lose. They don't own any of their assets. Every time a hotel room in, in uh, Hilton goes unused, right. that is, paying for it. That, that's a loss. Right. Uber versus the Hertz, company, right? Right. right? Like, think about it. Uh, Hertz has a fleet of cars. 
right. Uber has no assets. Uber, right. Uber has an app, right? <laughs> so when you think about it, the the idea that extrinsic assets are not necessarily the thing that makes you a big, successful, highly valued company is also a whole mindset shift. Right. But if you think about it, what's causing that? So then it takes you back to understanding how consumers behave. So when I was growing up, assets were a reflection of comfort, security, things like that. You wanted to get to the point where you can own a home. Today's millennials, they don't need to own anything. They can go paying rent for the rest of their lives. Right. Owning things is almost too permanent. So an idea of Uber or Airbnb is very comfortable for them, whereas an older generation might be a little bit more comfortable having mm-hmm. th- things owned. It's the moving. It's the move from like owning a car to leasing a car to sharing a car. Right, right. And inter- interesting as you're saying it, especially from your position in, in the advertising world, is that it seems the only thing you really have is your reputation, right? The only asset that you really actually have is the last thing that I've connected you to. If I've seen you at an ad, if I've seen you at something viral, if I've connected your product to something that I can trust, that's all you got. So it's almost as if like the ad agency is is at the center, if you will, of business today. To a certain degree, it holds a significant amount of import because attention is at, um, it's just so hard to get attention these days. So mm-hmm. that's at a premium. I read a study recently that people say that, that human beings have the attention span of a goldfish these days, wow. which is eight seconds. Wow. So if a TV spot used to be 30 seconds and now the online videos or ads are 15 seconds and a Vine is six seconds, your Vine has a greater likelihood oh my of being recalled than many of these other things because it takes you longer to tell your story. Uh-huh. So in a world where advertising is driven by storytelling, you have to figure out how to be more relevant. And so that is really um, a big part of the challenge is earning attention in in this economy. Right. It's, le- it's learning how to tell your story. It's funny because you started as a journalist and now you're in the ad space, but you're still just telling stories. It's just that the stories are a little different, a little maybe tighter. In fact, one of the things we started doing about a year ago is starting journalism classes within the agency. Oh, wow. But I felt that there was so much that I had learned and I had, I guess, by either accident, coincidence, or subliminalness, I hired a lot of former journalists. That's funny. And we all had similar uh, rubrics in the way that we would think about how we developed our narratives, whether that was a new business pitch, an actual ad, um, how we would present something in a PowerPoint. It was very simple. It was like following that whole inverted nut graph that we learned in Journalism 101. So we said, for those who didn't have that opportunity, how do we bring Journalism 101 Mm-hmm. to the agency. Can you, can you just go through the, for, for our listeners, what's the inverted nut graph? Uh, well, it's the idea of starting with the lead paragraph. So the idea of, you know, trying to get the who, what, where, when, why, and how. I know that was said very fast. That's great. But, you know, you kind of go, go from there. If you don't get, suck people into the story with that lead paragraph, you're never going to continue into that second paragraph. And whether that's a newspaper or a blog post or whatnot, you've got to get them started with that first paragraph that's really going to suck the reader in. That's why headline writing is so critical. Right. Um, and, and today's headlines have to be written in a tweet. Right. And they actually have to be written shorter than a tweet so they could be retweeted. <laughs> so it's unbelievable. It's the, so what, what, I, what I'm really feeling here, and, and for those who are listening, it's not just a question about being in the ad agency. It's just, I think, in everything you do in life today, if you're running a nonprofit, for-profit business, old business, young business, whatever it is that you're doing in life, unless you're able to create and control a narrative about yourself and your company – you're really behind the eight ball because that's what's being shared. It's narratives. It's stories. People, even I'm sure when, you, when you're making an ad that's even just an image, it's really just a story that's being told by just looking at something. And the greatest people that are able to tell their stories, that's the greatest asset that they have today. Because that, that's the asset that sticks. Well, right, because you have to be, to, that was the exact right point. It's what sticks. And stories stick because they're memorable. Right. If you don't have something memorable, then again, right. with these attention spans where they are, it's fleeting. I mean, that, that doesn't that, that doesn't belie the importance of having a defensible product, right? So you want to you want to appeal to somebody on the emotional level, but ultimately they still have to have functional benefit. Right. You know, you were talking about the the move from glasses to contacts, but think about the move from glasses to glasses. Now, glasses are an element of, of style, an right. accessory to the point that my kids don't wear glasses, but they wish they had glasses because it would be an accessory right, right, for right, them. Right. The fact that Warby Parker is now one of the 
you know, most stylish brands out there and they create $100 glasses and people find that absolutely phenomenal. Whereas lens crafters couldn't be more relevant if they tried. <laughs> so I think it's a, I hope I'm not offending anybody from right. lens crafters. No, it's okay. But you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting how people can just even reinvent a category by demonstrating a functional benefit, which is affordable eyewear, but then tying it to an emotional benefit, which is, wow, this is not just affordable eyewear. It's actually pretty stylish. Right. It's how you look into who you are. Yeah. Amazing. Let's talk a little bit about, so you left the company, you left um, Netophone, mm-hmm. and then you started your own company, Kayak Communications. What was the moment where you said, I got to go, and then how did you open up your own place? What, were you, what was the thought process there? That, that was definitely a high-risk venture. Um, I had been at Netophone, IDT had spun off Netophone, so I'd been with that company for quite some time. I had gone about as high as I felt I could go there. And I needed something new. So the the challenge I was dealing with was, do I want to, what I really loved about them is that when I had joined the company, there were very few people. Obviously, I was the director of my own domain <laughs> with no experience. And I had managed to move up in the organization as the organization grew. So as much as I, w- I had started out as a big fish in a small pond, I was leaving as a big fish in a big pond. But if I had to think about what I really liked is, I liked the big fish in the small pond. Mm-hmm. But then I was faced with the situation of where can I find the right next small pond for me? And I realized I liked lots of s- small ponds. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to figure out how I could move, create an environment for myself where I could help smaller companies figure out how to get to that larger status. Mm-hmm. So that's when I said, okay, maybe I got to start my own consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And that's, what, that's where it started. But I think uh, the, the confidence was really given by the fact that Netsaphone was kind enough to actually sign me on as client oh okay so you left with them as a client so that, I left that them means as a that they, they really liked your work to be able to do that it, it, it was it, the the interests were very much aligned mm-hmm. they didn't have to replace me immediately and and i was able to you know look for other clients and one of my first clients actually became 360i so how did that happen before i even get to that i want to sort of delve a little bit further was there something that you loved doing like was it that you liked telling the story because sometimes in life you get the job and it's not the per- you love in the beginning and then it doesn't become the job you want, but it doesn't matter. It pays the bills. And like you said earlier, it has a function, namely providing for yourself and your family. What was it that was the rub that you said, I don't want this anymore, even though it provided you all the security that you were looking for? Was there a talent or a trait or a skill that you were looking to, to use more? What, what drove you outside? I really love the shaping. I mean, not mm-hmm. just the storytelling, but trying to figure out like the positioning and mm-hmm. all the different elements that kind of came into play. And I felt like I had done that for that company a number of times over. And they had reinvented themselves and repositioned themselves and restructured themselves many times mm-hmm. over. So I kind of been there, done that. But I wanted to see if I could figure out how to do it in other environments and not just in, in that case, telecommunications or tech, but how could I do it more broadly? Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the new clients I had taken on was... Um, Macromedia, which was then bought by Adobe. Mm-hmm. So they, they had the Flash player. Oh, wow. So just going, taking tech, but taking it in a very different direction, you know, very different direction. Um, in the media business, it was a company called Vibrant Media, which is now thankfully a very successful company. So trying to help them figure out how they could position themselves in the ever changing media communication space. So how did you get these clients? You leave and then you start your own company. Where did you work out of? Uh, I originally worked out of my house. So how did you get clients? Like how did you how did you compete with the big dogs? Um, well, the, the there was pros and cons. The good news is I, I traded on my own personal currency because I didn't want to take on too many clients, and I was frankly way too scared to hire anybody else. It was hard enough to yeah. get comfortable saying that I was going to support myself and and you know and and my my family, and then to th- sit there and say I'm going to be responsible for another human being. I just couldn't take that leap of faith. Um, so I didn't want to take on more clients than I could afford to really service myself. And I think one of the biggest challenges in the services business is you sell a brand and then that brand is uh, represented maybe by more junior employees. So I was saying, listen, I don't have a staff. It's me. So Mm -hmm. you you get me or you get nobody. So obviously that means you can't take on too many clients because there's only so much of you. What ended up happening was I was, uh, so eager to please, I kept taking on more clients and just well, the only thing that was really getting sacrificed was my family and my sleep. Mm-hmm. At which point I pared back my clients and, and ultimately I, I decided I wanted to join 360i full time. How did you get 360i? How did they come your way? 
it, it, it's it's not a very interesting story. A lot of the guys who were working there were former colleagues of mine at uh, at, at IZT, uh-huh. and they had, they had left a few years back, mm-hmm. and so and the connections you made there was what drove you there. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You got you 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 know so much of this is just in terms of like the client agency relationship. It's people always ask me like, what kind of uh, you know what do you want your next client like? Do you wish you could work for Nike or Apple or anything like that? And it's never it's never the actual brand it's always the people mm-hmm. you spend so much time with these folks your you know your clients your peers the people you work with like you've got to love the people you work with yeah it's a big big part of it right you can love the company but if the people aren't great you're gonna not like it, the, the job very quickly absolutely yeah so now you get the three you're, you're you have this uh this client and and um your first client from what I understand here is HGTV yes and they have this Interesting problem with living with Ed, which I think anyone who wants to Google can Google. Um, and uh, as part of this, you have – is this your idea? Like you come up with this concept in terms of reaching out to bloggers, right, as this new strategy for how to get um, content to multiple people. Is that something that you thought of as something you saw somewhere? Because I don't think in 2005 when you were doing this, this was something that people were doing. People weren't doing it per se, so there there were a few different kind of factors at play. So by this point, I was freelancing for for 360i. They were a client of mine, and HGTV was a client of 360i's. Right. Um, but HGTV was hiring 360i to help improve their search results. Mm-hmm. And so we're so if you actually learn the ins and outs of of how to improve your search rankings, part of it is getting other sites that have value to link into your website. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying to figure out how to negotiate with other websites to add value to it so that they could then link back to the HGTV website. Like d- making deals. Trying to cut deals uh. or just say, hey, would you mind? <laughs> you know, like, pretty please. Um, and so my background was in PR. So I, I was talking with, uh, with, with, with my boss um, and we were saying, you know, what if we applied best PR best practices to this pretty please methodology? <laughs> And so finding people that would be more likely to want to actually write about the television program, not just linked it for who knows what sake. And so that was where we kind of married the value of search engine marketing with the value of PR. Uh-huh. And that is what bore out the uh, that, that original service, which we ended up trademarking called DWOM, Digital Word of Mouth. Mm, wow. So we, uh, we were able to switch the... Uh, the living with Ed search results significantly so that you might not even know why living with Ed might be uh, right. Well, if you're out there, go look for it. We're not going to say it on the air, but if you're out there, let's see if you can figure <laughs> it out. You could tweet me at Charlie Harari and uh, let me know if you found that why. <laughs> well, actually, don't tweet at me; just email it to me. But yeah, but you, you did a great job. You did a great job to change that, and it's amazing that you came up with this concept. Um, what was it like when when it hit you? Was it like eureka? Was it like let's try it or it's not going to work? Because it seems to me that now this is sort of I I would say. First base, right? I can't imagine anybody in the space right now not knowing how to do this. This seems to be so intuitive, of course. It's always intuitive after someone Ten else thinks later, about it. years later, sure. Right? I mean, it was interesting. It definitely was a eureka moment. I'm not going to lie. I was ecstatic. I was ecstatic <laughs> that there were like bloggers writing about the environment like off the grid writing back to me and I'm getting like super excited about this. I'm like, it's oh my so God, cool. Treehugger wrote back to me. <laughs> um, and that was, but it was a eureka moment because we started seeing those, those results changing immediately and- Whereas in the PR business, you might pitch a story, it might not come out for, you know, days, weeks, months later, here you've got like this instant gratification. So it was very, uh, very exciting and and super gratifying. And we had a case study really quickly. I mean, it was pretty incredible for us to see that. And yes, now these days it's like, oh yeah, we're going to get some bloggers to write about it. It, You're right. It is first base. It's like table stakes at this point. And it's extended. It's not just blogger outreach. Now the bloggers are charging you to be a part of it. Right. So, you know, it's bloggers, it's, uh, you know, Pimfluencers, it's Vine influencers, it's Snapchat folks. It's it's become a very big business. And thank God it's a big business at 360i still. Um, and it, it's part of our, our weaponry, if you will, um, as an agency. But it's something that at the time, PR agencies were undercrediting the digital landscape. Mm-hmm. And there was another problem, which is that the bloggers at the time were overcrediting their influence. Mm-hmm. So where we sat was kind of in the center of that, where we were giving the bloggers the credit and the validation they were really appreciating, and we were bringing big brands to that table. So it really helped us launch uh, 
our social media practice initially was a big deal for us. Well, it's amazing that even what, how you're describing it, I, I read this great quote about, I think from Steve Jobs, about how most innovation doesn't come when you create a new product. Most innovation comes when you bring two different products together. And, and in case in point for him, he didn't create the phone, he didn't create the MP3 player or the camera or everything else in the world. He just put everything into one platform. And now when my kids take my phone, which is amazing, that my kids, their first use for my phone isn't, isn't talking. I don't even think it's top 10. I think it's pictures, Netflix, whatever. The, there's like 10 things that they go. And it all comes from someone else's ability to say, hey, why don't I just draw two things together? And that's where a lot of innovation comes from, which is what you're saying, which is taking two separate parties and saying, okay, the blogger community is over here, the, the, the brand's over here. You, you guys aren't coming together like this, but if, I, if we can massage it a little bit, maybe we can draw this connection together. And innovation many times is just that ability to massage things that weren't otherwise fitting together. It's, it's an excellent point and one that if you always hire the same kinds of people, you're never going to get those kinds of results. Mm, interesting. And so hiring strategy really plays into that where you have to think about what are the types of people I want to hire? Because if I'm just cloning the same ones, you're never going to get that outside perspective to say, oh, what if we did marry two things that may not be great? Right. And I was wondering if, and wondering if you weren't in that space where you were your own boss, where you were being able to be creative, if you maybe if you even had that sort of like rigmarole of that corporate job, that may even even block you from being able to see a new perspective that, 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 opened up the door to something new. Yeah, I mean, Google was barely, you know, in, in my line of sight as wow. a mechanism from a communications perspective. So wow. yeah, I mean, it, it, it was incredibly fortuitous that I was able to see it from both sides, but I don't know how many other people who could have been as fortunate to be in that position, honestly. Right. Well, or, or, or would have put themselves in that position. And you're being humble about it, but a lot of people have the ability to do it, but they're just, there's a certain fear. And I think one of the things that I'm, that I'm taking from what you're saying and is that, and I, and I hope people that are listening are getting this, is that w in order to get to great opportunity, there's usually a prerequisite of, of challenge, confusion, um, lack of security. And sometimes in life when you're given an opportunity, I think I can probably, I, I, this probably happens once a week where somebody will bring up to me an opportunity for advice or my thoughts, and it is the moment where somebody gives them more than they can do. It's the stretch moment. It's that I can do this, but they want me to do this. Or even from a relationship perspective, I mean, I'm not this type of husband or person. Or I, the I'm not this type is such a common response. I didn't go to school for this. No, no, no. My degree is in this. And as the market starts to shift, the, the, the mentality of saying, well, I'm going to try it, or I'm sure I'm good enough, or look around. Like It's not like anyone else is an expert in this. This just came out the market two years ago. The ability to sort of see things and believe in yourself and be open really is the mark of an organic entrepreneur, right? And that's really something that I think people need to fully really grasp and, and understand that people that do great things, a lot of most of the time, it's not that they were just put in that position because someone tapped on them. There is a lot of risk and trying and, and, and uncertainty that sort of goes with, the, with their ability to sort of, like you said earlier, put themselves in a necessity position that they can make these big decisions. So now you go to 360i. And you're working your way through. And I was, I was reading about 360i, and there was a moment that I want to ask you about. There was a, the, in the moment in 2008, where times were tough for 360i, it was a down economy, it was a recession, and apparently you were in charge of the social media practice, and you had doubled your numbers. And there was an executive committee meeting, and the head of the executive committee said to you, you know, we're having a tough time, and we need you to step up, so I need you to double your numbers again. Can you give us, get back to that moment for us? I think I might have gone to my office and cried. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna lie. Tell, tell us that story. What happened? Um, the the gentleman who was in charge uh, of the executive committee at the time had this un, un amazing ability to extract the most blood from a stone. No matter what he did, I mean, he he really made you believe though that you could do it. I, I, I it was mess almost messianic. That's where great. it was like you, you really believed. Well, if he thinks I could do it, maybe I just don't know and I don't have the potential inside me. But the truth was there were a few different things that, that, that allowed that to happen. The first was the idea that we were coming up with a different way of trying to get communications going. So we were, we were able to double the business largely because, A, there wasn't anybody else in the market and we were able to tell, again, a compelling story as to why this method of communication was going to be better than either PR or better than advertising. Mm -hmm. The tough spot is that it wasn't easily defined. And unfortunately, marketers tend mm. to suffer from the give me one of those 
mentality. So you see that like Oreo Super Bowl tweet and they're like, oh, give me one of those. No, 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 that moment passed. <laughs> that lightning ain't going back in the bottle. So we have to come up with something else. So the idea here, like back in 2008 was the marketers were scared. Marketers were pulling back, but we were saying digital might be a more combination efficient, effective, disruptive mechanism that could be an alternative to your current communications. So, and and we didn't need a ton to double the business because 360i, thank God, had a lot of, um, that they had a lot of clients and they had clients that were willing to try. And so we just had a few clients that would try a little bit here and there. It could make a big impact. And so um, it, it, it was a very um, strong team effort from a lot of different people at the organization because it wasn't just the social media department. It was the belief by all the people that were representing those clients that this actually could be so strong. That was a one guy who I worked with, he said, let's go shake and bake. Every day he would come into my office and say, we're going to shake and bake. And, uh, and, and he would sell. I mean, he was amazing. So it, we, we had a really, really strong team of folks who, who, who simply believed that there were better ways of working than, than the current infrastructure. And it was a little David versus Goliath also. There was this, we're going to beat those big agencies because we're a small agency. Uh-huh. That's great. And so what happens? He tells you, you got you to double up. And then you know what I got here from what what you had, as opposed to sort of saying, and it seems to be a, a a recurring theme in your life, as opposed to being saying that guys, you're kidding me. You know what I'm saying? I just pulled out a a, a winner. I'm I'm holding firm together. I don't know if you, if, it, if it's that to that extent, but <laughs> and you want me to do what? But you didn't do that. You went back and said, "All right, I got to figure out how to do this." Yeah, that, that there definitely had to be a we can do this mentality, and part of it was. We'll figure it out because we always did. And by that point, there was enough of a track record to say, okay, we'll figure this out. I think I also got a tremendous amount of confidence from the success of the launch of the program in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that we were able to invent something from nothing. Right. And convince big companies to buy into it. And of course, now 10 years later saying, oh yeah, that's kind of industry standard. But even just a couple of years later was, you know, and, 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 and the beauty was that we, as much as the economy was, was not in the best of times, what was really gaining a lot of steam was social media. This was when Facebook was opening up their platform to non-college students. This mm-hmm. is when YouTube had its lazy Sunday moment. So we had the opportunity to ride the wave of where consumer behavior was going. And there weren't a lot of other agencies that were at it. So the bigger agencies were still making you know big, beautiful television spots and thinking digital was just banner ads. The tiny agencies didn't have the credibility. So we were sitting at this really good sweet spot. And I think we knew it. Wow. I mean, it, it certainly was was uh, a hearty challenge to double, um, but we had a great team. We had a great team. That's amazing. That's such an interesting concept of being able to be, without even realizing it, the, the, the poised as the wave comes in, which is something beyond your control, but what was in your control was sort of watching and watching and watching and riding and riding and riding that wave. And when that wave hit... Um, being able to reap those benefits, I think there's a lot of people out there right now as I'm, as that's listening probably going, I think there's a wave coming. I think there's a wave coming, and people going, no, that's not, that's not, that's not. It's very hard, and 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 it really requires a a lot of discipline to be able to figure that out because for every Facebook and Twitter, there was a Second Life and MySpace and GeoCities and plenty of places, mm. you know, platforms that died along the way. So the question is fundamentally. What were we trying to do? And mm-hmm. it wasn't that we were trying to purely ride the wave of YouTube or Facebook. It was purely to say, what is the inherent consumer behavior that we're seeing? And what is it that we really, like, what is it really that we're trying to unlock right now? And how do we adapt for that? And I think the adaptive skills that is really what became so critical. And it became critical in the way that we were hiring. It became critical in the way that we were training our clients. And those elements really played such an important role versus the bright shiny object syndrome. And considering we in and of ourselves were partially a bright shiny object ourselves, right. we had to have even more discipline to make sure that we did not become prey to that bright shiny object syndrome. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing more thematically as, uh, as, as trends in consumer behavior, not by specific website or platform, but more in terms of what that meant for how people were behaving. People liked sharing content. People didn't want to create it themselves. They really wanted to you know, either consume it or curate it. Mm-hmm. But creating content, that's a high barrier. Yeah. So how do we kind of take advantage of that? Interesting. And it's an interesting way of looking at it, which is a lot of times we all get sort of caught 
in the the moment of where things are going and we get and we stop at the surface level we never really ask the question which you're asking which is why why is this happening for what are some of the the underlying themes and i wonder if, if in, in every business if that's really what's going on which is the ability for us to be able to look under the underlying themes and something that I, i've seen you say before and i've actually seen you write about about being able to understand here i think you wrote learning what makes your client tick learning what's going on underneath not just what they're saying not just where the where the market seems to be bubbling but to go deep underneath it all um let's move on i mean i know that you've got a lot of other things going on in your life as well you know as an orthodox jew you've got shabbat every single weekend as a mom you've got your family so this is sort of the, the million dollar question that everybody asks everybody but it, it's your your um you know your perspective is incredible here what are your do you have any tips or tactics or strategies or hidden insights how do you balance um your religious and your faith-based obligations um and your familial obligations in, in your career I'll, I'll talk about the the faith stuff the faith stuff i find the trick is being clear and being consistent mm-hmm and so I've I've been very clear and consistent about kind of where my faith lies, what that means for what I will do and what I won't do, and what I will what I specifically will do to ensure that whatever restrictions may kind of come up from a business perspective are overcome probably, you know, even more so in mm-hmm. the workaround. So if I won't work on Saturday, what am I going to do on Sunday or on Friday or late nights to make up for it? Does that make for a particularly balanced life? No. Do I have like 17,000 hobbies? No, no, I don't. Um, but I am very much, um, I, I get a tremendous amount of fulfillment for my job. I love what I do. I love the people I work with. And uh, so that's that's a trade-off that I make. Mm-hmm. And so from from a faith-based environment, I think Shabbat is probably the hardest Um Actually, Shabbat might be the hardest only because it's just like, it, it's so black and white. It's just like, I'm not, you're not going to hear from me on Saturday. You're not going to hear from me come sundown on Friday. And that's the end. At, at work, they call it, I turn into a pumpkin. Yeah, I get it, the two, by the way. Where'd they get the pumpkin line from? I don't know. It's like Cinderella, you know? Like uh, at, at, uh, at midnight, they, they turn into a pumpkin. They got it from Cinderella. Why wouldn't I have thought that? So, I get the same stuff. They go to me when I first started my first job, my first day, it was like a Wednesday. And the, the, the partner comes to me and goes, Charlie, I know that you're going to turn into a pumpkin. Um, just go whenever you have to. I guess it's from Cinderella, right? And I go, okay, I guess I'm going to turn it to a pumpkin. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and, and it's funny because like it's it's now a verb at the office. So, so Sarah is pumpkining at 7.06 today. So yeah, th- there's that. And then the other part is, is the kosher issue, which I think I, I you know, at this point, I'm, I'm so comfortable with it that, you know, I just bring my, you know, bring my food with me wherever I go. It's a little bit more complicated outside the US because they don't understand it. But right. I have to say, I was in Tokyo a couple of months ago. And we're at this big, like, multi-hundred-person dinner with CEOs from all the other agencies within the Dentsu network. We're owned by this Japanese company called Dentsu. And they seat everybody at their tables. And my area was all blocked off with, like, these little bento boxes with the kosher, do not feed, kosher, do not feed. Like, I was an animal. But they meant it in the most respectful of ways. Um, it was behind the glass. And people yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then they got me, like, this thing from, 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 the local, uh, from the local synagogue where they were able to get me food, which was really lovely. But um, at this point, I just, I, it's okay. The only thing is, it's, you know, socially, it's not, the, it's not the most ideal. You can't go out to lunch easily, whatever it's fine i mean it's again i just think it kind of comes down to consistency on on the family matter though i gotta say i think you know i think everybody struggles i think everybody struggles with balance i think dads do i think moms do i think people with elderly parents do i think people who want to just go to the gym and feel guilty thinking they want to go to the gym everybody's got pressures because i don't know too many jobs unless you're punching a clock where it's nine to five there's always pressure and Home creeps into work and work creeps into home. And that's just what happens. Um, moms tend to feel a little bit more of the brunt because generally they're seen as the primary, you know, they're, you're the emergency contact. Right. And, and so that certainly, you know, takes its toll. But I just feel like there is a disproportionate amount of attention being given to moms. But I really feel like, especially with the multitude of challenges that everybody faces these days in terms of time-based situations that we just need to be flexible in general Mm -hmm. and understanding of the various pressures that people have in life. Um, I try to do that as a boss. I try to do that as a client. I try to do that 
with my kids. Uh, but you know, it's uh, it's it's just I think it's just a common understanding of today's new world order. Right. It's always it's always you have to turn it off. We did this video uh, three years ago called "Disconnect to Enjoy," mm-hmm. in which we 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 tried to create these scenarios where people were with their family, and they were on their their phones, and so we had the people in the commercial sort of disappear. And then um, they're sitting there alone, and then all of a sudden they put their phone down, and then the people, are, they, the the scene comes back, and you're with them. And I think it's very indicative of how people act today, which is they assume that because they're with their family physically, then it's as if if they're with their family uh, in all levels, and where there's there's plenty of opportunity where we can be with our loved ones, in which unless we're more careful in terms of bringing everything with us all the time, like you're saying, that that 24 hourness of work. Um, if you're not careful, it pervades everybody always. And it's something that I think, I think it's, it's moving in the right direction now. I think five, three, four years ago when technology and the iPhone started to really, or whatever it was, it was worse. And I think now people are being much more cognizant over the fact that, you know, if I do take my phone with me and I'm putting my kid to bed and they're sort of talking to me and I'm on the phone, then there's a, there's a bigger issue than when it, when it was first a cute toy that came out. But you're absolutely right. I think that it's something that people need to really sort of look at it from a global perspective and say, how are we all grappling with this? And how are we all making sure that bosses and employees are, are are much more careful about our time? I think I think it's, it becomes a mutual respect issue. It's a respect of employers to employees and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And I know myself, I have to be more disciplined about when I'm communicating with my employees because if I'm sending an email late at night, then all of a sudden I'm giving a I, I'm applying pressure by doing so because now they feel they need to be responding to me, right? Right, and that becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. So. I, I, I'm not going to say I'm good at it yet. I'm saying I'm a work in progress, but I think it's important for all of us to, you know, set better examples for each other on on what that means. Also, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we're all a work in progress, but that's 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 exactly right. One more question. I know that your your time is valuable. I've got, I actually have two more questions for you. Um, there, you. I saw a quote that you did that I, I really loved, and here I wanted to read it to you. And you, someone was asking you now. 360i goes from being this, you know, small mid size firm to just thank God, just killing it, like killing it, like killing it, killing it. I'm reading like top three, only ad agency that's top three and, and you're continuously, thank God, just just top of the game. And someone asks you like, how do you feel about being number one? And you respond, and I'd love for you to, to, to comment on this is, well, it's not about looking at the competition. It's really about looking at the potential. Meaning being number one isn't about like, oh, I'm comparing to number two. Is that how you run the business? Is, is the way you look at your clients and your business not about where I place amongst other firms, but is there, is there like this sort of like constant stare at who we could be? You know, the who we could be, I don't think that that's another agency. I think where we think we could sit in the ecosystem is really kind of where it's at. So yeah, that, that quote, I think it might have been about a year ago, it definitely rings true because if we were always trying to chase somebody else, then... You know, if they don't move, then we don't move. Right. That's not very exciting. Um, but I think if you look at the fact that people spend more time, like just general, you know, human beings spend more time consuming content via digital than they do any other media. So now they're spending more time consuming their content in digital than, than TV, than print, than billboards, what have you. And yet there's a disproportionate amount of favor being given to old school ad agencies. Why is that? I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. Like, wouldn't you want a digitally led agency to be your agency? And so for us, that's that that's where our sites are, is to be the best agency on the planet, not mm-hmm. the best digital agency, mm-hmm. to be the best agency on the planet. And uh, I don't know who the best agency on the planet is today. I don't really care because that's not who I'm chasing. Because whoever is, is the best agency on the planet today by whatever metrics you would put on it, they built it a different way. Mm-hmm. And so we want to build it the way that consumers behave today and evolve it for the way consumers are going to be behaving three months from now, a year from now, five years from now, and constantly be evolving. Right. And that I think that's a, that's a key point that you're bringing up that I think is important for everybody, which is the idea that the way you become the best is not necessarily by looking to the right and to the left and saying, how could I be better than the person next to me? The way you become the best, especially in this environment where, you know, when I grew up, I mean, when I was in school, I was given a choice. Like, I, I'm, you know, my... I come from, you know, very traditional Jewish grandparents, which means I had to be a doctor. That Dr. was it. Boyer. That was it. And maybe be- counted. Maybe right, counted. Exactly. And because I failed out of bio, like mm-hmm. they, they let me be a lawyer. That's how I started my career <laughs> because I was even to this day, my grandfather's like, and you're you're still a doctor because Juris Doctor, it is a doctor. I'm like, I'm still a doctor. <laughs> so the the idea that you sort of had a path to choose 
it's it's an old way of thinking and the the way the world is going is you no one knows what tomorrow is going to bring no one knows what jobs are going to open up no one knows what skills are going to be in vogue and the idea of a human being being able to say to themselves i am who i am i need to be who i am and be the best at that is incredibly empowering um, and also freeing from being able to stop looking around and trying to be a billionaire by 25 because it seems like every day Forbes is showing a new one. The the way you're building your company and what you just said, I think is the way that everyone has to build their lives as well, which is I need to be the best me, period. And that's going to take me on a journey that may be strong in digital or may be strong in whatever. But as long the way, just constantly look at my clients, my consumers, my the people that 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 are you know digesting my content, whether that's my family or my clients or my customers, and I think that 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 way of thinking is really the future of becoming great. Because, like you said, to the right and to the left, who knows what's going to be? And the way they built it isn't the way you're going to be built. It's constantly changing. The only constant is change. It's just. Uh... That's right. the way we got to live. Right. Last question. Sure. Um, everyone has a moment, and I, 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 you know, there's always that moment every time in every single sort of like narrative of a, especially a script narrative, is a moment in which the hero, the protagonist, is is doing really great, and then something comes in and knocks him out or her out, right? And then it's usually the lead up to the end. You think the movie's over, and then there's some kind of wall, and then that hero needs to make a choice to give up or to find something in themselves that wasn't necessarily accessible beforehand did you have that moment in your career where you were going on some road and you for whatever reason hit a wall and at that moment you had to say to yourself okay either i'm going to be more or it's it's not going to be enough it's a great question i think it's happened a couple of times but um something you brought up earlier does ring true which is that moment in 2008 and it wasn't one particular moment it wasn't that moment where uh i i I was told to double revenue it was it was before then because things were not looking good in the not not necessarily in our business per se but overall in the advertising communications and and the industry itself and there was this moment where we were kind of all talking amongst ourselves saying wow we're looking to the left and to the right and everybody is hiding under their desks all the agencies are sitting there saying, oh my gosh, this, this, this business is going to tank. And it wasn't just me. It was the leadership team decided we're going to double down. When everybody's kind of ducking and covering, we're just going to go gangbusters. And we're going to try to hustle for new business. We're going to go take everybody's fear and we're going to go try and see if we can just scream confidence and assert ourselves in an environment where people were, were covering. And whether it was a combination of the social media a- initiatives or just innovations in other areas, we just said, if we can invest now, whether it's in thought leadership, in speaking opportunities, in developing case studies, like anything that we could do to better market ourselves, whereas everybody else was kind of paralyzed by fear, we just kind of just went for broke. Wow. And it worked. Wow. That's amazing. Sarah, thanks so much for taking time. I know your time is so valuable. We really appreciate it. My listeners are definitely going to appreciate it. We wish you only the most success in all of your endeavors as you lead this company and your life and everything. It's more than just events. It's what they mean to your life. This is the Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645.